This morning we begin our study through the book of Romans. So I've got a question for you guys. How many of you feel like you, you know the, the scope of the book of Romans, like it's in your head? You kind of know where Paul's going, what each chapter's kind of about until the very end? Kind of rusty, okay. No? Okay. <laughs> okay, well, hopefully this is going to be really helpful then, because uh, we're going to take a look at the whole book today. But let's, let's pray before we get into it. Father, we ask today that you would grant us understanding. Grant us understanding of the scope of this tremendous letter that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the Romans. Pray that, Lord, it would instruct us that, Lord, you'd help us to cement in our thinking what this book is about so that as we go through it slowly, we're, we're, we're going through with a view in mind that we know where we're headed. And we know how each part plays into the whole. So, Lord, give me a grace to clearly be able to communicate those things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Next Sunday morning, we're going to begin a hike through the book of Romans. But this morning, we're going to fly through the book of Romans. <laughs> if you went to the uh, Tahoe Rim Trail, there is a hiking path all the way Lake Tahoe. It's 165 miles. And if you were to take a hike through that Tahoe Rim Trail, it would take you one to two weeks. Most hikers take about two weeks to make that complete hike. But if you were a bird, you could go through that whole hike, hovering above it, the whole perimeter, in about six hours. Well, we're going to be birds today. We're going to put wings on, and we're going to lift ourselves up and fly over the book of Romans. See, there is a, an advantage of going slowly through a book, and the advantage is that you get the detail. If we were hiking around the entire perimeter of, of Lake Tahoe, we would see all kinds of interesting things, wouldn't we? We might see the bird in the, in the limbs of the tree. We might see the... Uh, the, the deer off in the distance, perhaps we'd see the fish jumping on the lake, we'd see the different kinds of trees, and the, we'd see every bend and every uh, valley and every pond and every, every facet, every stream. All that would come into our minds because we're going so slowly, we're looking at everything. That's the advantage of going slowly through a book of the Bible as you get to the, the detail. But there's also an advantage of going quickly through a book of the Bible. And believe it or not, this is the first time I've ever taken a whole book and preached it in one sermon. But the, the advantage of that is that you see a, the overview of the book very, very quickly. Like that bird, in six hours, it sees the entire terrain of the perimeter of Lake Tahoe. And in about one hour, we're going to see the entire terrain of the book of Romans. So next week we begin our hike, but today we're going to fly. So let's begin. Let's strap on your wings. We're going to talk about the introduction to the book of Romans. That's chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. There's also a conclusion to the book of Romans, which is the last half of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16. But in between there, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 15... And verse 13, we have the major content of the book. Now let's begin with the introduction. Paul begins in the first seven verses <clears throat> to tell something about himself, something about 
Jesus Christ and something about the believers in Rome. When it comes to himself, he calls himself a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He said he's called as an apostle and he's set apart for the gospel of God. But see, then he goes and shifts and says, this gospel is really all about Jesus Christ. If you ever want to know what the gospel is about, that's it. It's about the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for mankind. And he says about Jesus that he's the subject of the gospel and that he has a human nature and a divine nature. He's the son of David according to the flesh. That's his human nature. But he's also the son of God and we know that because of the resurrection from the dead. Now as we go through here, we're not going to actually be reading the text because that would take all our time up. But what I'm going to be telling you is sort of a paraphrase of, of each paragraph as we move through the entire book. So that's who Christ is. He's human, he's divine, he's the subject of the gospel. But then he talks about the believers in Rome in verse 6 and 7. And he says that these believers were called. They're called to be saints. And not only that, that they are beloved of God. They're called and beloved of God. And then Paul begins to launch in verses 8 to 15 into, first of all, thanking God for these believers. He says he's constantly thanking God for them because their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And not only that, but he's constantly praying for them. And what he's praying about is that he would be able to come to them. He's asking God to give him an opportunity to come to the church in Rome. And do you know why he wants to come there? It's not so that they will give him money or that they'll feed him or whatever. The reason he wants to come is because he wants to impart a spiritual gift to them. And he says, you know, I feel like I'm under obligation to both barbarians and to Greeks and to Jews, to all men. I'm under obligation to preach the gospel to them. And so I want to come to you and I want to preach the gospel to you as well. Yes. That was after. Yes. Yes, it was several years after. And then we come to the theme in verse 16 and 17. I took a writing class probably 20 years ago in college. And the way they told us to write these short papers, they said, you have an introductory paragraph to your paper. And at the very end, the last sentence of your introductory paragraph, you are to write your thesis sentence. And what that means is that you are going to give an overview in one sentence of everything that you're going to include in this paper. Okay, verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1 are Paul's thesis sentence. It's the theme of the entire letter. So let's read that. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So the theme of this book is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says the gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings salvation. And it brings salvation to everyone, Jew or Greek, who believes. So here are the themes. The gospel, salvation, faith. And then verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here's the fourth theme. Righteousness. God's own righteousness. So this is, verses 16 and 17 are like the little acorn. 
and it's going to grow into the mighty tree of the book of Romans. We're going to unpack verses 16 and 17 so that you can see the fullness of the gospel in this book. Now we come to the very first of Paul's major points. If Romans is about the gospel, then the very first thing he tells us is the desperate need for the gospel. And that's chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And he tells us three different groups of people that need the gospel. First of all, the heathen, chapter 1, 18 to 32. Secondly, the Hebrew, chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 8. And then the whole world, chapter 3, verse 9 to verse 20. So first of all, the heathen. So here we are in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. And Paul says that all men, no matter if they have the light of Scripture or not, and in, in this passage he's talking to people who don't have Scripture, mm -hmm. but what they do have is light of creation. And he says that all men, because of the light of creation, know that there must be a Creator. God has put that evidence within their own hearts. They know that truth. And so the heathen, ones who don't have Old Testament Scripture, know just by looking around at creation, looking at the sun and stars and moon and looking at the mountains and valleys and animals and all the intricacy of God's design on this planet, they know there must be a Creator. But what do the heathen do with that knowledge of God? They suppress the truth. They suppress it. They push it down. They don't want, they don't want that truth because if they admit that there is a Creator, then they're admitting that they're accountable to that one. What they should have done is give thanks to their Creator and honor Him as their Creator. But here in Romans chapter 1, Paul says they didn't give thanks, they didn't honor Him, but they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. And they made images of man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and reptiles and crawling creatures. They made these idols and they bowed down and they worshipped them. So what is, how does God respond to the heathen that do that? He gives them over. <coughs> You see, in verse 18, it says, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God reveals His wrath towards the heathen that don't honor Him or don't thank Him, but suppress the truth about Him. How does God respond? He gives them over, verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, He gives them over to degrading passions, such as homosexuality. In verse 28, he gives them over to a depraved mind. So, he gives them over in the lust of their heart, to degrading passions, and to a depraved mind. And when God does, when God gives them over and lets them go their own way, they spiral downward. And so we have a list of I don't know how many sins, like 30 different sins in verses 28 to 32, describing what happened when God gave them over. They just went into sin. So the heathen desperately needs the gospel. This may answer the question, well, are those people who have never heard of Christ, do they really need missionaries to come and talk to them? They sure do. Because they're under the wrath of God. They're depraved. God has given them over. They need the gospel by which they can be saved. But then when we come to chapter 2... 
Paul tells us the Hebrew, the Jew, needs the gospel too. He says about the Jew that he's judgmental. In verse 1, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in the, that which you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. So here he's talking about the Jew. He says, the Jew judges the Gentile. The Jew looks down and despises the Gentile, but he practices the same things that the Gentile does, and so he's under the same wrath that the Gentile is under. Paul says in this section, verses 1 to 16, that the Jew's heart is stubborn and unrepentant. And so the result is God's judgment, God's wrath, God's fiery indignation. He says God is going to judge all men through Paul's gospel, and the secrets of their heart are going to be revealed. And that's how he comes to verse 16. Now in verse 17, if we were unclear as to who he's speaking about in verses 1 to 16, there's no question when we come to verse 17, because he begins verse 17 by saying, but if you bear the name Jew. So we know he's talking about Jews here. Now how do the Jews feel about themselves? How do they identify, you know, what's their opinion of themselves? Well, verse 17 says they relied upon the law. They boasted in God. They knew God's will. They approved the things that are essential, instructed out of the law. They're confident that they themselves were a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So they felt like they were pretty hot stuff. You know, they've got the law. They've got, they were the teachers. They weren't in darkness. They had the light, right? They were instructing everybody else. But Paul says in verse 21, you therefore who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach it once you not steal, do you steal? In other words, they were indulging in the same sins in different ways, but the same sins that the Gentiles were indulging in. And at the end of chapter 2, he says, you know, circumcision is really... not Outward circumcision is really not all that important. He says, the person who practices the law will be the judge of the person who was circumcised who didn't practice the law. The true Jew is not the one who is circumcised outwardly, that which is outward in the flesh. The true Jew is the one whom the Holy Spirit has wrought upon their heart and changed them into a new person. And that's how he finishes the chapter. True Jewishness has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, chapter 3, verse 1 what would be the logical question that would come to these readers' minds when they've just heard that circumcision really doesn't matter that much? What really matters is whether the Holy Spirit has worked on their hearts. Well, the question would be, well, what advantage is there being a Jew? Why should, I be, why should we be circumcised? I mean, is there any real advantage to being Jew? And Paul's answer is yes, there is advantage. And the advantage, first of all, is in that you have received God's truth. The oracles of God. The Jews had received revelation from heaven in the Old Testament scriptures. And so, yes, there was a great advantage in being a Jew. 
Another question surfaced, and see what Paul will do is he'll teach for a while and then he will anticipate questions and objections that his readers would have as they're reading what he wrote and then he'll go on to answer their questions and then he'll get back to teach some more and then he'll answer their objections and he'll teach some more, then he'll answer their objections. So chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, he's answering objections. Another objection was, well, if my sin just demonstrates how righteous God is in comparison, like he's so much more righteous than me, then why, why would God judge me? Isn't it unfair for God to judge me if my sin is showing how righteous He is? You see the twisted logic there? And Paul says, no, no, God forbid that God would not judge. He says, actually, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? And we know God is going to judge the world. If through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, here's the objection, why am I being judged as a sinner? And Paul says, well, why not say as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. In other words, you can't make any kind of excuse that because your sin is making God look good, that somehow He's unjust to judge you. But now he gets back to his main thought again. He said that the heathen needs the gospel, the Hebrew needs the gospel, and in verses 9 to 20, he says the whole world needs the gospel. Look how he begins in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better than they Gentiles? I'm inserting those words to help you understand what, he's, what he means here. Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. You see his point? I've already showed you that Greeks are under sin in chapter 1. I've shown you that Jews are under sin in chapter 2. Everybody's under sin. And then he goes back to the Psalms, and he begins to quote the Psalms to prove his point. And what he does at the beginning here is to say that depravity extends to every person. Notice the words, none and all. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So the emphasis here is the universality of depravity extends to every person on the planet. Of course, save Jesus Christ, who was born without sin. But then in verses 13 to 18, it's not just every person who is depraved, but every part of every person. He talks about their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth, their feet, their paths, and their eyes. When he talks about their paths, he's probably talking about their legs that take them along the path. So every part of the person, his eyes, his mouth, his tongue, his, every part of him is depraved and is corrupt. And that's why he needs the gospel. And then he concludes this whole major first section in verses 19 and 20 with this summary statement. Talking about what the law says is the condition of every person. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law why? So that every mouth may be closed. In other words, nobody can justify themselves by looking to their own works. The law closes every mouth from justifying itself, and all the world may become accountable or guilty before God. 
Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. For through the law doesn't come justification. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was never given by God to save anybody. The law was given to convict and show man how sinful he was and how he desperately needed God to save him by grace. So that's how Paul sums up the first three chapters showing the desperate need of the entire world for this gospel that he's going to reveal to us in the rest of the letter. Are we all together so far? Awesome. Okay, point number two, the divine solution of the gospel. So, if our need is that we are depraved through and through and desperately need to be saved, what is the divine solution? Well, he gives it to us starting in chapter 3, verse 21. And he gives it to us with the two words, but now. <laughs> I love that. He, if, you, if you imagine chapters 1, 2, and 3 up to verse 20 as being like this dark storm where it's thundering and lightning and it's dark clouds and it's pouring down rain, you come to chapter 3, verse 21, and all of a sudden stops raining and the clouds split open and the sun starts coming through because he's starting to show the solution to this horrible problem of sin and the solution is righteousness but not ours God's that's the solution God's righteousness and that's what he said in chapter 1 verse 17 in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed that's the solution that all of us desperately need this righteousness was manifested and witnessed by the Old Testament law and prophets it's not something newfangled it's been people have been the prophets have been talking about it for hundreds of years and finally it has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Now what can we say about this righteousness? Well first of all, as we already have, it's not our righteousness, it's God's. Secondly, it comes to us on the basis of faith. Not on the basis of our deeds or our works. Faith. Thirdly, it comes as a gift to us. And I'm getting all this from chapter 3 verses 21 to 24 if you want to check it out. <laughs> it comes as a gift. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We don't work for it. It's freely given. And then we also are told that it comes to us in two different theological words. Redemption and propitiation. Redemption comes to us in verse 24. Propitiation comes to us in verse 25. Now redemption means to be set free by the payment of a ransom. So Christ has paid the ransom to set guilty sinners free from their sin. The penalty and the power and one day even the presence of sin. That all happened through the redemption of Christ Jesus on the cross. Propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. So how, how are we able to freely receive this divine righteousness that covers our sin? It comes through the redemption of Christ and it comes through his propitiation where as a sacrifice he set aside God's wrath so that we could receive God's mercy. And that takes us to verses 27 to 31 of chapter 3. And in this section, Paul simply asks the question, well, where is boasting? There isn't any boasting in this scheme of salvation. There can't be any. Because it has nothing to do with our human works. 
efforts, achievements, performance. It's all something that God has done. It's God's righteousness given to us freely in Jesus Christ. The only thing we do is believe. <laughs> Faith is the hand that reaches out and accepts this righteousness for itself. That's it. And faith is nothing of you. The Bible even teaches that faith comes as a gift from God. So this is a divine work. So boasting is totally excluded from the plan of salvation. Now, we get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, what Paul has just taught us in chapter 3 about how justification is by faith alone, he's going to illustrate in the person of Abraham. And that was important because Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And so in order to have clout and authority in his teaching, he goes back to the very first father of the Jewish people and he says, okay, how was Abraham justified? Was he justified by his works? Absolutely not. In the first eight verses, he said, Abraham was not justified by works. In verses 9 to 12, he says Abraham was not justified by circumcision. And in verses 13 to 15, he says Abraham was not justified by the law. He wasn't justified by works, by circumcision, or the law. Now, we would probably change that a little bit, and we would say we are not justified by our deeds, our religious ritual, or our obedience to God's moral law. So he takes the person of Abraham and he illustrates what he had just taught in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. You see how he's going here? He wants to bring this with power. He wants to take a living person and show from that living person how God actually saved him. And in all of this, he's quoting Old Testament scripture to buttress his argument. So then we come to chapter 5, and when we do, we come to a new truth that Paul is presenting. He's shown us the desperate need of the gospel, and then the, the divine solution of the gospel. And now for about three chapters, five, six, seven, actually almost four chapters, he's going to show the transforming power of the gospel. Now we might wonder, is the gospel just a way where we can get our sins forgiven, and that's all? Does it leave us with the same, in the same sinful mess that we started with? You know, great, it's great to have our sins forgiven, but do we have no power over those sins? And so in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul is going to say, no, no, no. The gospel not only brings forgiveness, it, it brings power over the old sins that used to enslave you. Now, how does it do this? In many ways. First of all, it brings a new joy. And that's Paul's point in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He uses the word exult. At least in the New American Standard, it's the word exult. And that word exult means to rejoice exceedingly. It's a triumphant rejoicing. And he uses the word in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 11. There are three things he says that the Christian exalts in. He exalts in the hope of the glory of God. Now what is he talking about there? What does he mean? He rejoices in his future hope of being in heaven, basically is what it means. He rejoices that forever he will be with God. 
loving Him and serving Him and enjoying God forever. That's the hope of the glory of God. He's rejoicing right now in that. Secondly, He, he exults in His tribulations. I say, well, why in the world would He exult in that? Because tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. Perseverance brings about what? Proven character. And what does proven character produce? Hope. So we're back to where we started. Tribulations for the Christian prove to him that he is a real believer. And when he realizes that he's a real believer, that gives him even more hope that he's going to enjoy the glory of God forever. But then the third thing that he exalts in is God. Look at verse 11. Not only this, but we also exult in God. He exalts in the hope of the glory of God, in tribulations, and he exalts in God himself. Now why would he be rejoicing exceedingly in God? Well, verses 6 through 11 tell us why. It's because while we were still helpless, verse 6, or yet sinners, verse 8, or enemies, verse 10, God justified us and reconciled us to Himself through the death of Jesus Christ. He took us while we were helpless, sinners, and... What's the other one? Enemies. Helpless sinners and enemies. That's who we were. And in that condition, Christ died for us and reconciled us back to God. And so now we just rejoice in God through the gospel of what He's done for us. Now there is another reason why this gospel transforms us. And it's because the gospel brings a new union. A new union between us and Christ. And so in chapter 5, verse 12, to chapter 5, verse 21, we get this very deep theological section that... I'm just going to give you a brief overview of it. But basically, in Romans 5, 12 to 21, Paul says that there are two representatives, Adam and Christ. Adam represents all men physically, all men descended from him physically. Christ represents all men descended from him spiritually. What each of those persons achieved or accomplished is put to the account of those they represent. So what did Adam actually do? Well, he disobeyed God. Because of that, he was condemned by God. And he dies. So Adam brings disobedience, condemnation, and death to the human race. All of us inherit that. We're born sinners under a death sentence. What did Christ achieve? Obedience to God. Righteousness or justification. And life, eternal life. So Adam puts disobedience to our account, condemnation to our account, and death to us. But Christ comes in and He brings God's righteousness, He brings justification, and He brings eternal life. And so the real issue Paul is saying in Romans 5 is, who are you united to? Who represents you? If it's Adam, you're headed for everlasting damnation and death, destruction. If it's Christ, you're headed for everlasting life and glory. But who represents you? And he carries that same theme of union to Christ into chapter 6 in verses 1 to 14. Because there he says that the believer because he's united to Christ, died with Christ to sin. 
He says that your old self was crucified with Christ on the cross. I know these are difficult concepts, folks. They're not easy to understand. <laughs> And we're going to spend a lot of time when we get to these chapters going in depth. But let me just give you the quick overview. If you are a Christian, you are united to Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And even His ascension, Ephesians 2 tells us. But His death, burial, and resurrection. Because Christ died, and because you are in Christ, you died to sin. Because Christ was buried, you were buried with Him. Because Christ was raised, he says in verse 4, now we too walk in newness of life, a new life, the resurrection life of Christ. Now how do we take advantage of those glorious truths about us? Well, he tells us how to do that with three words. Know, consider, and present. Find those words in Romans 6 verses 1 to 14 and circle them. He says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Then he says in verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 13, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. So the way we take advantage of the truth of our union to Christ is we know, we believe what the Bible tells us is true of us in Christ. Then we consider it, which means we count on it. We consider, we think about it, we, we actively put our faith in that truth. We, we consider it. And then thirdly, we go from the, the considering stage to, to the presenting stage where we actually take the members of our body, present them to God, and say, Lord, let these instruments of mine be instruments of righteousness for you. We know, we consider, we present. And that brings us to another way that the gospel transforms us. Romans 6, verses 15 to 23, it's by a new master. A new master. In verse 14, he sums up the first half of Romans, 4, Romans chapter 6 by saying, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Now that word under means under the dominion of. A slave is under the dominion of his master. He's saying, you are not under the dominion of sin anymore. You are under the dominion of what? Grace. That means grace has become our new master. Not law and not sin. And then he says also in this section, verses 15 to 23, that we are not only slaves of grace. In verse 16, he says you're slaves of obedience. In verse 18, he says you're slaves of righteousness. In verse 22, he says you're slaves of God. So we, we are slaves, but we're no longer slaves of sin. We're slaves of grace, obedience, righteousness, and God. And what's the result of all of that? Verse 22, your sanctification. Meaning your continuing conformity to the image of Jesus. You are becoming progressively holy because you're now a slave of grace, not a slave of sin. Grace is a powerful thing. That, uh, grace is so powerful it transforms people, makes them different people over time. And not only does the gospel transform us with a new joy, a new union, a new master, but also a new husband. And that's what we have in Romans 7. 
Romans 7 verses 1 to 6. Paul starts off by saying that we are like the wife and the law is the husband that we used to be married to. And he says the law was nothing wrong with the law. But it was a very miserable marriage because the law was so exacting and so precise. You know, we would do our best cleaning the house and he'd come along with his white gloves and say, showed you right there, you didn't get it all, you know. So we were married to the law and we could never please the law. We could never perfectly obey the law. And it was a miserable marriage and we wanted out. But the problem is the law is never going to die. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle shall ever pass away from the law. It's going to remain forever. So if the law is not going to die, is there any solution to this terribly miserable marriage that we were in? We have to die. We have to die. <laughs> and that's what he says in verses 4 and 6. We died. How did we die? We died when Christ died. When Christ died, the believer died in him. That's what he says in verse 4. My brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So you used to be married to the law, but if you died, you're no longer married to the law anymore. But when you're resurrected from the dead, you can be married to somebody else. And guess who we got married to? Jesus Christ. He's the new husband. What's the result of the believer being married to Christ? Verse 6, we bear fruit for God. And that's interesting because in verse 5 it says, when we were married to the law, we bore fruit for death. But now we're bearing fruit for God. What else is true about the believer married to Christ? Verse 6, he serves in newness of the Spirit. Not an oldness of the letter. So now that we have a new husband, we're bearing children, new, new kinds of children, not, not pride and envy and selfishness and lust and all those little children. Now it's holiness and love and joy and peace and patience. These are the new kids that come along with this new marriage. Christ bears them through his people. Okay, now listen carefully because we're going to get into some deep waters at this point. Remember how I said Paul will teach for a while and then he'll go off and answer objections? That's what he's doing in verses 7 to 25. No. Okay. In verses 7 to 25, they have questions. And the questions that they have come from verse 5. In verse 5, Paul has linked the law to sin and death. He says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now a Jew hearing this is going to be stumbled because he's thinking, wait a minute, you're linking this holy law with sin and with death? Are you saying that the law is sin? Are you saying that the law causes death? Because the Jew venerated the law. And so Paul will go on for the rest of the chapter to answer those two questions. The first question in verse 7 is, is the law sin? His answer is no. And he goes on and explains why in verses 7 through 12. Then he asks the next question. Is the law the cause of death? Do you see how those come out of verse 5? He's just explaining something that he knows they're not going to understand from what he said in verse 5. And then he goes on through the rest of the chapter to explain, no, the law is not the cause of death. My own sin is. Now, commentators and scholars are divided over who Paul is talking about at the second half of chapter 7. 
You know when he says, the good that I would, I do not do, not do the bad that I don't want to do, I end up doing, and he goes on and on and on talking about that. They think, who is he talking about? Is, is that himself in the present saying that he's really a slave to sin and he, he can't, you know, he never can really do what he knows God wants him to do? Many, many Bible scholars do believe he's talking about himself in the present. I disagree with that. Amen. I believe he's talking about a non-believer. And I believe that because chapter 6 says that he's no longer a slave to sin. And then at, at the end of chapter 7, he says he is a slave to sin. Mm -hmm. I believe what he's talking about is himself before he was married to Christ. He's talking about the miserable condition he was in when he was married to the law. Trying to please it and never being able to actually fulfill the law. And so on and on he will go through the rest of chapter 7 describing the miserable experience of being married to the law before he's actually freed. And that takes us to chapter 8. How does the gospel transform us? By a new power. A new joy, a new union, a new master, a new husband, and now a new power. What power? The power of the Spirit. In chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned a single time. He's absent. You come to chapter 8, bang! Almost every verse, the Holy Spirit's coming up. Why? Because now he's talking about what it's like to be married to Christ. He's no longer married to the law. He died. Now he's alive with Christ. Christ is his husband. And he, now he has the power of the Spirit in his life. And so in the first uh, 13 verses, let me see here. In verses 1 to 14, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 12 times. So he goes from zero times in the previous chapter to almost every single verse. What does the Holy Spirit do in the life of a Christian? Well, from this text, we're told that he sets us free from the law of sin and death. He enables us to fulfill the requirements of the law. He brings life and peace. He is going to raise our mortal bodies from the dead. And right now, He is enabling us to put to death the deeds of the body. The power of the Spirit is working in the Christian to transform him. But that's not all. He also transforms us by bringing a new sonship. And that's what we have in verses 15, 16, and 17. You haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So there's this new relationship to God, where we know we are His children. We cry out to Him, Papa, Father. It's not some distant deity that we have no connection to. There's a relationship of father and child with God. And not only that, he says in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit inside of us testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. There is this communication between the Holy Spirit who lives in us and our human spirit where he, he assures us that we are God's children. And that's why we cry out, Father, Papa, because the Spirit has done this work within us. And then not only that, but because we've been adopted into God's family, we're heirs. Children are heirs, right? And because we're heirs of God, we're joint heirs, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. So guess what? Whatever Jesus inherits from God the Father, so do we. 
because we're the bride and he's the groom, right? When I get married, everything I had was contributed to my wife, which wasn't a whole lot. <laughs> a motorcycle back and a suitcase of clothes and a banjo. That's about all I got, had back then. <laughs> and whatever she had became mine too. Joint ownership, right? Yeah. Well, that's what happens between the Christian and Christ. Joint ownership. Fellow heirs. So, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 is how the gospel transforms the Christian. A new joy, a new union, a new master, a new husband, a new power, and a new sonship. Which brings us to Romans 8, verses 18 to 27. And here is the truth presented here. The ultimate glory of the gospel. Where is the gospel going to take you and this present world that we live in? Well, he says right now there's groaning happening. The creation is groaning, the Christian is groaning, and the comforter is groaning. <coughs> Creation's groaning. The creation was subjected to the curse when man sinned. And so that's why trees eventually will die. That's why animals get sick and die. The whole creation's groaning under the, the curse of man's sin. But one day that curse is going to be lifted and the sons of God are going to be revealed who they are. Christians are going to be known as God's people when Christ comes back. And the present world is going to be restored to a paradise-like condition like Eden before the fall. Maybe a little bit of Hawaii thrown in, you know. Just like perfection, perfect weather, surfing, and beautiful blue... I know, I'm going off on that, but... Anyway, but you get the point? Creation is groaning because they're under this curse and they're waiting for the sons of God to be revealed when Christ comes back so that they can be restored. But not only that, but the Christian groans too. It says in verse 23, Not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is that? The redemption of your body. He's talking about your body being glorified. When Christ comes back, your body's going to be changed to where it can't die, can't get sick, um, can't sin anymore. <laughs> it's going to be redeemed perfectly and completely. And he says the Christian groans until that takes place because they still battle sin. They still are grieved by the sin in their life. They grieve God. They, they, they fail. And there's this groaning. I want to be released from this old body of sin and death and I want to have a new body. Well, that's coming. That's coming. And not only that, but the comforter, the Holy Spirit groans too. <laughs> It says in verses 26 and 27, when we don't know how to pray as we should, the Holy Spirit prays for us. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So you've got all this groaning going on in this present world until the restoration of all things when Christ returns. That's the ultimate glory. Sin is gone. Sin is banished. The curse is lifted and it's back to Eden before the fall. Okay, another truth, the fifth great truth of this book, the sovereign application of the gospel. We've seen the need of the gospel, the solution of the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel, and the ultimate glory. But here, we, here Paul shows us the sovereign application. What he means by that is, well, how does a person actually benefit by this gospel? How 
does that happen? How does someone get saved? And his answer is, they're called. God calls them. And he tells us that in Romans 8, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And who are they? They're the ones who are called according to whose purpose? Their own? God's purpose. They're called according to God's purpose. And then he, he fleshes out what it means to be called according to God's purpose. He says in verse 29, the next verse, that the person who is called was foreknown. And not only were they foreknown, they were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And those who were foreknown and predestined, then they were called, the Holy Spirit drew them to Christ, and once they were called, they were justified, God's righteousness was put to their account, you could say they were righteousized, branded with God's righteousness, covered with God's righteousness. And then the fifth step in this golden chain of salvation is that they're glorified, which means they're going to be in heaven. They're going to be with God forever. So how important is it to be called? <clears throat> There's nothing more important than that. My friend, if you have not been called, you're still lost. And if you're never called before you die, you will end up in hell. That's how important it is to be called. And the calling comes from God, not from you. And it comes according to God's purpose, not yours. You see, what he's doing here is he's showing God's sovereign application of the gospel. He goes on in verses 31 to 39 to show how secure the Christian is who has been called. He says that this person who has been called, that God is for them. He's not against them. And God is freely going to give them all things they need to get to heaven. And that nobody can condemn them. He says that no one can bring a charge against them. And there is absolutely nothing in all creation that can ever separate them from God's love in Christ. I mean, there is no more secure that a person can be than that. That comes because they've been called. If you're called, you are saved. Now and forever. Which brings us to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, he's continuing the same thought. The sovereign application of the gospel. In the first five verses of chapter 9, Paul says, I have great grief and unceasing, great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart because I know my kinsmen, the fellow Jews, they, they're not saved. Most of my fellow Jewish countrymen are not believing this gospel and they're still lost. They've not been called. Even though they had such great advantages. Which brings him to the question in verse 6. In chapter 9, verse 6. The people who are reading this letter could say, Well, are you saying that God's word has failed? The Jews aren't believing the gospel. Does that mean God's word has failed? And Paul's answer is no. The word of God has not failed. Because God, God's word never promised that every physical descendant of Abraham would be saved. God promised that every believer descended from Abraham would be saved. And God has made sovereign choices distinguishing from what, this person and that all the way down from Abraham to this present day. He said Abraham had two sons, right? Ishmael and Isaac. 
he chose, he chose Isaac. He passed over Ishmael. Isaac had two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And in fact, Esau was born first. He was the favored one. He should have been in all rights. But God passed over Esau and chose Jacob to be of the line through which the Messiah would come. In fact, look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who what? Calls. Calls. There we're back to that word, the sovereign application of the gospel. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Esau, you're going to serve Jacob. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In other words, I've made a choice here. Jacob's going to be the one through whom Messiah will come. Esau will not. I'm passing over Esau. I'm putting my special love upon Jacob. Now, what would be the immediate reaction in somebody who heard that? That's not fair. That's not fair. And that's what comes up in the next verse. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Is God unjust to choose Jacob and not to choose Esau? Well, what Paul says, he just starts quoting things from the Old Testament. He says, look at your own scripture. When he talked to Moses, he said to Moses, I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll have mercy on whomever I have mercy. It's my decision, not yours. That's what he says. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills. It doesn't depend on the man who runs. <clears throat> what it does depend on is God who has mercy. And then he finishes this in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Instead of backtracking and backpedaling, he enforces what he said in verses um, 6 through 13 about the sovereign application of the gospel by quoting Old Testament scripture about Pharaoh and about Moses and showing how God has always been sovereign. Now, the readers are going to have another objection at this point. They're going to say, okay, if, if all this is predestined, then how can God judge me? How can God hold me accountable if, if he's already predestined everything that's going to happen? And Paul's response is who, is, who are you to lay the blame on God? He says in verse 20, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? You are a pot. That's all you are. He's the potter. And the potter has a right to make two different kinds of pots. He can make a pot for honorable use, or he can make a pot for dishonorable use. He can make a pot that you spit in, or he can make a pot that's a beautiful vase and you put it up for everyone to see and admire. It's, it's the potter's right to do that, right? God's the creator. God has the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation because he created it. Now, if, if I created a song, right, and I've done that over the course of my life, written songs, I can decide I don't like that one, throw it away, I'm not going to work on that anymore and start with a new one. Or I can change the song any way I want to because I'm the author of the song. Well, God is the author of everything that is in this world. He has divine rights to do what He will. And so He has the right to sovereignly apply the gospel to whom He will. And Paul's point in chapter 9 is that God applies the gospel to those He has elected and those He has predestined to be saved. Whether we like that truth or not, 
I can't read Romans chapter 9 and get any other message from it. God is the potter. Notice how strongly he puts it in verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called. See, he's getting back to this calling. Why were you called? Because you're a vessel of mercy, which God prepared beforehand for glory. Why are other people never saved? Because they're vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I mean, those are his words, not mine. We just have to do business with the truth and just say, okay, Lord, whether I can fully reconcile all of these things in my puny little head, I'm going to accept what you have to say in this chapter. You're sovereign, you're God, and I'm not. So the sovereign application of the gospel is he calls, he sovereignly calls out of this world those whom he has elected before time, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. <coughs> Which brings us to another great truth of this letter. He gives, shifts gear in chapter 10, and he's going to go and tell us about the gracious invitation of the gospel. Even though it is true that God has chosen who he is going to save, it's also true that he freely and sincerely offers the gospel to every person. That's what I said about trying to reconcile these truths in your puny brain. That's also taught in Scripture. He freely offers this gospel to all people. And we see that starting in Romans 9, verse 30. Because there, we're told that God offers righteousness to all who embrace Christ. And the reason why the Jews stumbled and didn't receive salvation is because they were too prideful to simply receive Christ as their righteousness. They tried to compile their own righteousness. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Which brings us to chapter 10. And in that same chapter, Paul says, this is how a person is saved. They must believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And they must confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. If they'll do that, they will be saved. There's the offer. Salvation is free. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth, and it's yours. And in verse 13, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, salvation has nothing to do with a person's own personal righteousness. It has to do with believing, confessing, and calling upon the Lord. And Paul goes on to say, Well then, how is this gospel going to be offered to all people around the world? God is going to send preachers. Those preachers are going to preach so that people will hear and then they will believe and then they will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And he ends chapter 10 by presenting God as someone who's stretching out his hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people who will not come to him. But offering salvation, come, come. And people reject the offer and walk away. The seventh great truth of Romans is the inclusive plan of the gospel. And just like chapter 7, chapter 11 is a, a deep theological chapter that requires a lot of attention to interpret it. 
I, this chapter 7 and chapter 11 are kind of like those chapters that you dread going to because it's going to take some real work to understand those chapters. Well, how does, how do, what does Paul do in chapter 11? He anticipates another objection. And the objection is, are you saying God has rejected the Jews, Paul? Has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer is, no, no, I'm a Jew. God hasn't rejected me. I'm saved. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you understand? It's not that he hasn't rejected any Jew, any physical descendant from Abraham, because he did. He rejected Esau, he rejected Ishmael, he rejected lots of unbelieving Jews. But he has not rejected the Jews whom he foreknew. Now what does that mean? It means God knew beforehand what he planned to do to call them to himself. He foreknew them in that sense. He foreordained that they would be his children. And we know that's what he means because he refers back to Elijah and Elijah was complaining that there's nobody else left that was faithful to God and God says no no I've kept for myself 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee who did that God kept them for himself just as God is the one who calls these Jews to himself Verse 5, in the same way there also has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So the Jews, God has not rejected the remnant that is according to his gracious choice, the ones he foreknew. God is going to save all elect amongst the descendants of Abraham. He says in verse 7, what Israel is seeking, it hasn't obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Do you see his point? Elect Israel will be called, non-elect Israel will not. They'll be hardened. Which brings us to verse 11. And the next question the reader has is, are you saying that the Jews have permanently and for all time been rejected by God? They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Have they fallen and will never get back up? Paul's answer is no. God is going to continue to save a remnant of Israel from the cross to the second coming of Christ. Through this church history, this span of time, God is going to continue to save some Israelites. And how will he do that? He's going to save Gentiles, which will move the Jews to jealousy, to want to have what the Gentiles have. That's his point here. <laughs> That's God's inclusive plan. He, he includes the Gentiles, he includes the Jews. And the way he's going to stir up the Jews to come, and the way he's going to call them is by making them jealous. Hey, I want to have what I see these Gentiles have. <laughs> he says, they can be grafted right back into that olive tree. They're, they've not fallen, or they haven't stumbled so as to fall in. They have stumbled, but they can still be grafted in if they believe. And God is able to graft them back in again. God is able to call them and bring them into the olive tree. Which brings us to verse 25, which I think is a verse that is often misunderstood. Paul says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial ha hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. 
Some people teach that this verse means that God is going to save every Jew at some point in human history. A lot of them think it's going to be during the tribulation period at the very end before Christ comes. But let's think about what he's been saying through chapter 11. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. In other words, non-elect Jews have been hardened, elect Jews have been not. So it's only a partial hardening. Not all Israel is hardened, only a part of them. And they're going to be hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now when is that? That's the last Gentile to ever be saved. That's when Christ returns. So what he's saying is, from now until Christ comes, some Jews will be hardened and some will be called. They'll be called because they're going to see Gentiles being saved and they're going to be jealous and want to have what they have. And that's how God's going to bring them in. But there is going to be this partial hardening that will happen all throughout history until Christ comes back. So, I'd, in fact, he says in verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. The word so means in like manner or in this way. In the same way that God saved Jews in the first century by moving them to jealousy, in that same way, he's going to save Jews throughout history until the very end when Christ comes back. And he says, all Israel will be saved. Now, who is all Israel? The one from the faith. Say it again. The ones from the faith. Okay. He says back in chapter 9, verse 6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. All Israel is not the physical descendants of Abraham. All Israel are the spiritual descendants of Abraham who possess faith in the Messiah. All of those Israelites will be saved. He, I don't believe he's promising he's going to save every Jew before Christ comes back. I think he's promising that all of those Jews chosen by God will come to faith and they'll come to faith in the way that the first century Jews came by being provoked to jealousy. I hope I haven't lost you too badly by this point. I know, I know this is deep and it's hard to keep your train of thought, but do your best. We, wow, we're up to chapter 12. We've only got one major point left. And that is the practical outworking of the gospel. You see, Paul ends the first 11 chapters with a beautiful doxology in Romans 11, 33 to 36, giving God glory and praise for the mercy that he has bestowed. And then he picks that up in chapter 12 and says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God that I've just been describing for 11 chapters, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Give yourself to God based on the mercy He's given you. And don't allow yourself to be conformed to the world, but transform your brain, your thinking, by the renewing of that mind as you let the Word of God in. So the believer is to present his body as a sacrifice and renew his mind. In verses 3 through 8, the believer is to exercise his spiritual gifts on behalf of the church. So he is discover, to discover what gift God has given him, whether it's teaching or exhorting or mercy or giving or whatever, and, and use that gift for the church. In verses 9 to 21, the believer is to love others, to serve others, to bless others, and to be devoted to others, never taking revenge. In chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, the believer is to submit himself to governing authorities. He's to pay his taxes. He's to honor the king, or for us it would be the president. He's to 
pay his custom dues and his taxes. And then in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, he is to love one another. In chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, he's to lay aside the deeds of darkness. So he is to make no provision for the lusts of his flesh. He's not to continue on in a life of rioting and self-indulgence and, uh, you know, partying and that kind of thing. He, he is to devote himself to Christ. In chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, the believer is to accept other believers who differ from him in non-essential matters. In other words, if you think a Christian should never drink alcohol or wine, and this Christian thinks he has the liberty to drink wine in moderation, those two people shouldn't be judging each other. They should accept one another. These are non-essential issues. Your salvation is not dependent upon whether you have a sip of wine. Now, if you are a drunkard, that's a different story. But if you drink more wine in moderation, giving glory to God, thanking Him, and you don't go over the line, then the Bible gives you the liberty to do that. So we ought not judge each other for that. We ought not judge each other for what we eat. Some people think you should just be a vegetarian. Others can eat meat. You shouldn't judge each other about that. That's not essential. You shouldn't judge each other on which day you should worship God. Some think it should be Saturday. Some think it should be Sunday. Some think it should be every day. Doesn't matter. Non-essential. Accept each other. And that's his point. And he, he goes on for a long time. So this is a big deal in Paul's mind. He's really hammering this home. And that brings him to the conclusion of the letter. In chapter 15, verses 14 to 21, Paul talks about his past ministry. How he had preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum in the power of signs and wonders. And there was no more place for him to preach. He didn't want to build on any man's foundation, so he wants to go where the gospel's never gone before. And then in verses 22 to 33, he talks about his future ministry plans. Do you remember where he wants to go? Spain. Spain. He wants to go to Spain. And he wants to come to Rome, hoping that they will send him on to Spain. Maybe they would give him some provisions that he will need, food, clothing, whatever he's going to need to, for this next leg of his journey. So he's coming to Rome, hoping that they're going to send him on to Spain. And then in chapter 16, Paul gives his greetings to all the different people there in Rome. And he not only sends his own greetings, but he sends greetings from people who are with him, including his secretary, who's been writing this whole letter, Tertius. I, I find that just a little amusing. In chapter 16, 22, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. I'm here. <laughs> I haven't talked about myself the whole time, but I've been writing this letter. So he sends his greeting. And then... Paul winds up the entire letter with a summation in verses 25, 26, and 27. Another doxology. We've got one doxology at the end of the doctrinal section and at the end of chapter 11, and a final doxology at the end of the entire letter in chapter 16. And this doxology brings all the various strands of doctrine that Paul has been laying out in the letter. And he speaks of the gospel again one final time, and he gives all worship to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, his Lord. So there's the book of Romans, in a nutshell. That's where we're going with this book. And if it teaches us anything, 
It teaches us the glorious mercy and grace and love of God towards sinners. That's what the gospel is all about. And it teaches us that we can be transformed by the power of the Spirit and by His joy and by union to Christ and by our new husband and by the sonship that He's given to us. All of those wonderful truths are right now in transforming our lives, making us new people. But the ultimate question comes down to, have you been called? Has God called you? If He has, He's given you a new heart. A heart that loves Christ and a heart that hates sin and wants to be through with it. And if that's true of you, rejoice this morning. Because the gospel is for you. God is for you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for the, the great breadth and depth of this letter by which we see your great love and mercy and compassion towards us in Christ. May we be saturated with the truths of Romans, Lord, as we work through it week by week. May it work its way into every heart at the bridge. May it be transformative, Lord, that we would find ourselves changing and becoming sanctified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.